0: Now let's turn over to John chapter 19. We didn't quite finish chapter 19 the last time I was here. I've been gone the last two weeks to uh, Thailand and Cambodia. And if you weren't here Sunday, and Sunday night we had a great missions uh, night meeting and everyone who was on the trip shared. And so I don't even think we recorded it. So it's, oh, we did record it. So you can get the tape of that, and that'll save me the trouble of having to repeat anything. It was, a, it was really a good trip. Get the tape, get the CD, and, and uh, you'll be able to hear about it. Where we left off the last time as we were studying here in John, uh, finishing up the Gospel of John, we went through verse 30, and now we've come to verse 31 of chapter 19. And of course, a lot of chapter twenty and most of chapter twenty-one we've covered on Sunday mornings, so it's my intention to finish the book of John tonight. I'm not anxious to finish it because I've really enjoyed the time that we've spent in this in the Gospel of John. Um, but we'll wrap it up here and move back into a quick survey of first and second chronicles because they're pretty much a review of what we've had in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, um, but we want to go through them and and dig out the things that the Lord has. So next Wednesday, Lord willing, we will begin uh, going through the first probably twelve chapters of First Chronicles next Wednesday. A lot of it's not that we're going to move real fast; it's that it's primarily genealogies there in the beginning, and so I think we can cover it fast. So John 19, verse 31, therefore, on the basis of what's gone before, and this takes us to the point where Jesus died, he said, it is finished, and verse 30, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, Jesus and the two guys next to him. They might be taken away. They wanted to make sure they were dead, kill them now. When you were hanging on the cross, the only way to get your breath would be to push up with your legs against the spike or the step on the bottom, and you could get a breath before you then relax again. And so when they, wanted, when they weren't dying fast enough, they could break their legs, and then it would be impossible to breathe. And so... They ask if they could do that, and verse 32, "...the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe." For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again another scripture says they shall look on him whom they pierced. So Jesus was hanging on the cross and he died. Jesus said no one takes my life from me. I give it up willingly. And so as he said it is finished and into thy hands I commit my spirit. He gave up his spirit and he allowed himself to die at that point, he could have hung on as long as he wanted to, but it was his choice because of his love for us, that he would give his life at that point. Now, notice it says it 's the preparation day and this whole thing about not leaving him on the dead on the Sabbath. Um, This presents an issue that there's been a lot of discussion, and I don't know that we have a perfect solution for it. But it revolves around the idea of Jesus was to be dead for three days. In fact, Jesus said, comparing himself to Jonah in the whale, that he would be three days and three nights dead. Now, traditionally, people have believed that Jesus died on Good Friday. That's why we call it Good Friday. But then you have Friday, Saturday, he rose Sunday morning early, and so you say, well, he was, in, he was dead Friday day, Friday night, Saturday day, Saturday night, Sunday morning, he rose from the dead. It seems like there's a night missing from three days and three nights. And there are a few different possible explanations. The, the Jews, when they would count their days and nights, they would count any part of a day or any part of a night as a full day, and that may be the simple solution. But the, there's a clue here in John that would suggest something else, and that is that it, since it says that the Sabbath was a high day, there in verse 31, the normal Sabbath was the seventh day, Saturday, but the Jews had other Sabbath days as well that would coincide with various feasts. We know this was the beginning of the Passover, and the preparation day was the day before they would begin the week-long celebration of, of the Feast of Weeks. And we believe, because of Jesus being the Passover lamb, that he would have been killed on the Passover. It's, it's impossible to trace back and verify for sure which day the Passover fell on that day. But if the Passover fell on a Sabbath, that would make it a special Sabbath, certainly, and might qualify for this high Sabbath designation. But another possibility is that because they had other Sabbaths that hit at different times, and it would be interesting and 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 symbolically significant, for instance, if this was one of those Sabbaths that would come every year or every seven years, and so uh, what I'm saying is every Sabbath wasn't Saturday. It's possible that there was a Sabbath on a Friday, and that's why it would be called a high Sabbath or a special Sabbath, an exceptional Sabbath, and so... I believe it's quite possible, and a lot of people are teaching this nowadays, that Jesus actually died on a Thursday. They needed to get him off the cross before the high Sabbath, which was Friday. The next day being Saturday, being the Sabbath, and that's why they didn't come to the grave, couldn't come there until early Sunday morning, three days later. So if that's the case, then Passover fell on a Thursday. Jesus was sacrificed at three o'clock in the afternoon, exactly the time when, uh, when the... When the um, Lamb for the Passover was sacrificed. And then Friday was a high Sabbath, the day after Passover. And then Saturday was an ordinary Sabbath. And then Sunday would have been the day he rose. Um, It's a a plausible explanation. It's quite, quite possible, I think. It's difficult to be really dogmatic about it. I don't have a big problem with counting parts of days and parts of nights and saying, okay, it was three days. But I like the idea of a Thursday um, death and a Friday Sabbath because it seems like it's a more literal fulfillment of what had been prophesied. So at any rate... The Sabbath was coming, whether it was the Friday Sabbath or whether it was the Saturday Sabbath, and they couldn't have bodies left up on the, on the cross during the Sabbath because then no one would be allowed to take them down and bury them, and they'd have to stay up there all the way through the Passover celebration, perhaps, and so um, as a result, they were saying, hey, we need to kill these people. Dying on a cross was usually a pretty lengthy process. You can endure a lot when your life is on the line. It's excruciating. It's a horrible thing, but the pain doesn't kill you. And your, your life drives cause you to continue to struggle against death. And so... Um, These other two guys were still alive. Jesus had already offered his spirit to the Father. He had already said it's finished. He had accomplished what he set out to accomplish. He had taken our sins upon himself, and so he was already dead. The reason why John goes into so much detail is by the time John wrote the Gospel of John, there were people such as the Gnostics who were already teaching that Jesus didn't really die, that he just seemed to have died. See they didn't believe that Jesus had a physical body. The Gnostics believed that Jesus was just spirit. And and so that when he walked on the sand, he didn't leave footprints when he, you know, was outside, there was no shadow cast from him and so they were just saying oh he only appeared to die. And so John who deals with the Gnostic heresy and his other books as well, here is making it really clear, no, I was there, I saw it. He really died. He definitely died. They went around, and they verified that he was dead. That's why they didn't break his legs, which, of course, fulfilled the prophecy. And it fulfilled prophecy in two ways. Over in the Psalms, it talks about his bones not being broken, but probably even more significant, the Passover lamb could not be the Passover lamb if it had a broken bone. And so Jesus, not only fulfilling the prophecy from the Psalms, but he was also fulfilling the typology of the sacrificial Passover lamb, and as a result, it was important that his bones not be broken. Had that happened, he couldn't have fulfilled that type, and so John makes the point, his legs couldn't be broken because of prophecy, but on the other hand, he would, uh, he was definitely dead, and in order to verify this, the, the soldier took his, took his sword, his spear, And shoved it, and it would have come up under his ribs because when you're down and he's hanging up, the spear would reach up there. And so coming up and opening up a big enough wound that later Jesus, as we saw a few Sundays ago, could say, put your hand in my wound. And that would be consistent with the spearheads that they used that were about... 4 to 5 inches wide very sharp and would have really rammed it up there inside it would kill you and again in order to verify that even more this eyewitness account saying that blood and water came forth from the wound now by this time most of the blood had run from Jesus's body with the scourging and all it, he wouldn't have had a lot of blood left and, and and most of it would have gone down and settled in the lower part of his body at this point anyway but what happens is, as the spear was pierced in there, blood and water came forth. The blood showed that the spear penetrated the heart because it would only be in one of the ventricles of the heart that blood would have still been sitting there in order to flow out like that. And then the, the membrane around the heart, the pericardium, which is a protective coating that you have around your heart that has a watery substance around it, which acts like a shock absorber for your heart, the spear would have had to come in and pierce the pericardium and then pierce the ventricle of his heart as well. What's the point? Well, there might be a few points. There are some that preachers make about this, but the main thing is that John's trying to drive home is Jesus was dead. It's ridiculous to suppose that he would not be dead given this, and there are people um, You know, a guy years ago wrote a book called The Passover Plot that suggested that Jesus wasn't dead. He had just passed out, and then the coolness of the tomb revived him, and somehow he managed, while wrapped in burial clothes, to hop past all those soldiers without being seen and sneak away and then make everyone see that he was okay. When you had lost the kind of blood that he would have lost with the suffering that he went through, and then that kind of of a... sword, spear piercing through your heart, you don't survive those kinds of things. And, and so John's ultimate point is he really did die. Because John, as he's writing his book, wants us to realize that Jesus died for us, that he paid the penalty for our sins. And so after years had passed by and heresies were starting to pop up, here's John again as an eyewitness saying, no, I saw it. Now there are also people who see that Jesus actually died of a broken heart, believing that perhaps the heart had already been ruptured and mixed with the fluid around that membrane of his heart, pericardium. And and, and, and that's possible, but I think a spear would do that to you as well. It seemed like the water and blood were distinct as they were coming out, and and uh, and it probably wouldn't have necessarily come out in a supernatural sort of way like a on the Passion of the Christ, where it looks like they turned on a sprinkler, it's, he's just making the point that it leaked out that way. But the other thing that some people see in this, and and you get some support for it when you read in what John said in First John chapter five about Jesus and the whole idea of blood and water being born of blood and water, saving with blood and water. Um, In that case, people generally talk about the water as referring to his physical birth and the blood referring to his death, his sacrifice on the cross. There are other people who see the significance in this as water being the initiatory right into into the body of Christ through baptism and then the blood being a reference to his identification with his death in communion. And so some people see in blood and water, baptism and communion. Some people would see in the water his humanity and in the blood his atonement for our sins. And you can, you can go crazy with all of it. I, uh, all of those things may be valid, but the real point that John was trying to make is that Jesus died. He was really dead. And, and so again he says, he who has seen, verse 35, has testified. And his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. So basically he's saying, I saw it, I experienced it, I'm telling you, he's dead. He died for sure. This wasn't something that was fake. I was there. And later on he demonstrates how Jesus' body was dealt with, with uh, as as Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were uh, setting the embalming stuff there and everything, and he's just going, believe me, you can be assured he was dead. I have a friend who was a real good friend of Elvis's. There's still a lot of question as to whether Elvis is really dead or not. And I, but, so my friend, I asked him, I, I said, he was like Elvis is one of his best friends, and I said, is Elvis really dead? And he said, you know, I was in a room with his body for two hours alone. He's dead. (laughs) He is dead, you know. And and this is the same kind of thing that John is saying, really. Now, believe me, he's dead. There were people that witnessed his death. There's no way he could have got by this. No way this could have escaped him. These wounds were, were definitely fatal. And so then he goes on and says in verse 36, for these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A, not one of his bones shall be broken, and B, they shall look on him whom they have pierced, which was uh, a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 12. And again, when the prophecies were all talking about him being crucified, normally someone's not pierced when they're crucified. You don't need to. You hang them on a cross until they die. If they need to die, you break their legs. That was the way the Romans did it. Now, it's, it's remarkable in that, first of all, For the Jews to prophesy that the Messiah would be crucified, that was pretty radical because Jews didn't crucify anyone. It was only the Romans who, for the most part, who performed crucifixion. So here is this fulfillment of prophecy that John is driving home, crucified yet, no bones broken. And at the same time, even more amazingly, this notice of the fact that they would look and see the one who was pierced and People wouldn't be pierced if they were crucified. That was an unusual situation. But again, God prophesies it very succinctly so that we can know that he knows what he's doing. And so verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. Now by looking at the other Um, gospels, the accounts of Joseph of Arimathea, a few things that John doesn't mention. One of them is that Joseph was very rich. Another thing is that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a member of the Jewish ruling class that ultimately had condemned Jesus. But he was a disciple of Jesus, but he was secretly. So here he was certainly not condoning what they were doing in killing Jesus, but at the same time, not having the courage to stand up and put a stop to it. And yet now he does a pretty brave thing. And, and over in Mark, it shows that he did it boldly, it says. He went and he said, I want his body. And so somehow the death of Jesus touched him in a way that though he had believed in Jesus and trusted in him, yet he got an increased amount of courage when Jesus actually died quite often you see in a in a crucial situation god giving boldness to someone who didn't have it otherwise and and sometimes in the most extreme situations and you can call it adrenaline you can call it whatever you want but in this case he was willing to stand up in you know the knowledge of the guys who were the source of his power and probably the source of his wealth and say i want that body i want to go bury it i i want to treat him with some dignity and so pilate said fine and and then nicodemus pops up you remember nicodemus from chapter 3 of john's gospel a pharisee another one of the classes of people who were who were um plotting to kill jesus and a Pharisee who John points out was the one who at first came to Jesus by night. Again, it hints that Nicodemus coming by night was, um, he was afraid of what people would think. And yet now he's stepping up. And now he's saying, and acknowledging really that something horrible has happened and wanting to try to ride it. And so he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Myrrh and aloes were used as an embalming Source in a primitive sort of way. The Jews didn't embalm in a sophisticated way as the um, Egyptians did, for instance. Uh, The Egyptians developed embalming to a degree that's really superior to the embalming that we do today such that um, they'll open up an Egyptian sarcophagus and find a body that's so well-preserved, it's amazing. The Jews didn't do that, but what they would do is kind of pack the the body with spices, basically. And, and so you look, man, 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes, that's a lot. But what they would do is they would usually bury a person by laying them on a bench. So they would lay a bed of spices on the bench and lay the body on it and then pack spices around it as well. And so Nicodemus was doing this. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury Now, this is an interesting thing to note. After they would pack the body with spices, they would roll like wraps of gauze around the body, um, much as what you see in mummy movies today. And, uh, well, I don't know if you watch mummy movies today, but whenever the last time you watched a mummy movie, that was how they would typically bury someone, wrapping them. It's why, remember, when Jesus uh, called Lazarus to come forth from the grave, he told them, untie him, because you couldn't, I mean, on the mummy movies, they wrap each leg individually and arms individually, so you could come walking out like this at least, but, but it really what they would do is they would bind their arms to their sides and their legs together and wrap them all the way up. And so in the case of, of uh, Lazarus, they needed to cut him loose from those strips of cloth um, before he, could, he was able to walk out when Jesus told him to walk out. Again, another thing that demonstrates they bound him like that. He wasn't going to get up and come hopping out of the grave with no one noticing. It's just preposterous to suggest that he could do such a thing. Another interesting little piece of trivia, perhaps you've heard of the Shroud of Turin. There are a lot of people who believe that that's the burial shroud of Jesus, and it has this weird negative image of a person on it that seems to date back to around the time of Christ, and it contains what what they believe, many people, Catholics and Protestants, believing that it's actually a negative image of Jesus, that he had his burial shroud on, and, and when he rose from the dead, it caused sort of a photographic reaction with the cloth, and therefore, um, you know, there it is, a picture of the resurrection. A fascinating theory, and it's interesting, and a lot of time and effort and energy has been put into proving whether or not the Shroud of turn really is a photograph of the resurrection or not. The problem with it is Jesus wasn't buried in some shroud that would get a, that would, you know, as we would, as it shows in the movies, as wearing this nice toga, he had burial cloths wrapped around him. John makes that really clear. So if, in fact, when Jesus rose from the dead, it caused a photographic image of him to be put onto his burial cloths, it would be a jigsaw puzzle. You'd have to piece it all back together. And so I, I believe from this and just from knowing what their traditions were that that Shroud of Turin is a phony. And we sometimes think, oh boy, you know, it's, it's, it surfaced over 100 years ago. How could they counterfeit something? Well, People had incredible technology way back in the, and and there was great value to different souvenirs and relics and things like that in the Middle Ages. So they easily could have done something that would that would fool people, um, and that's what I'm supposing that it is. Don't you know? It's not gospel, but clearly his body was bound in strips of linen, and that doesn't describe this beautiful robe. And so it says, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. Needed a place that was close by. We don't really know either where Jesus was crucified or where he was buried. Um, The Bible doesn't make it really clear. We do know that as it was prophesied, um, Mount Moriah, which is the mountain that runs through Jerusalem, he, was, he took them. We know that it was outside the city walls, um, which eliminates a lot of places. There are, there, if you go to Jerusalem, they have places within Jerusalem that they say, here's the place where Jesus was buried. In fact, they have three different places that say that. It's just a great tourist trap. It, it, the, I believe that the place that, that we tend to point out is a good, as good a candidate as any. Um, it's, a, it's a place that just outside the, the west side of Jerusalem, and there's a cliff, and up on top of the cliff, there's a hill, and there's a garden that surrounds that hill, and there's a tomb with a stone that rolls back and forth that's in that garden, um, It's, if you look at Jerusalem from a distance, you see that the mountain that starts in the valley of Kidron, in the Kidron Valley, and moves up through the city to the Temple Mount. And then you look at at this area that now they uh, call uh, Calvary and the Garden Tomb. It's the highest point of that whole area of Jerusalem, and so it's logical that that would be a place where they would go, heading out the gate of the city and burying him up there. Also, if you look at the cliff, it looks eerily like a skull, and we know that the place where he was buried, Golgotha, was called the place of the skull. Today, that hill is deteriorating, there's a bus station right below it, and it's kind of wearing away, but if you go up there, they have a place where they say that Jesus was crucified. There's a nice little uh, garden there with a place where you can go and have church services and communion and things like that, and there is a tomb there. And when you go to Jerusalem and they give you the lectures, uh, they often will say, if it's a Christian lecture, they'll often say, this tomb has a lot in common with the tomb where Jesus died. We don't know if this is the specific tomb where Jesus was buried or not, but this tomb and the tomb that Jesus was buried in have one thing in common. They're both empty, and that's really the important point. That's really what matters is that Jesus died, he was buried, he rose from the dead. But if you ever have a chance to go to Israel and you can see that site, it's pretty convincing. By the way, there are a lot of people who believe that where Abraham sacrificed Isaac was not the place where the Temple Mount is today, not the place where the the Dome of the Rock is, but actually that Abraham would have gone to sacrifice Isaac on this same location. If it was in the mountains of Moriah, as it tells us in Genesis, and if you're going to sacrifice your son, I think you're going to walk about as far and as high as you can get. And if you stand on the walls of Jerusalem and look at the contour of the land, you could see very easily where if this one little valley wasn't there, where it's been eroded, that it would have ended up right up on that place where we believe there's a good chance that Jesus was crucified. And so, um, again, they took him and they buried him in this garden tomb. Nobody had been yet laid there. We know from the other Gospels that it was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. It was built for him. It was brand new. Now, it wasn't that unusual for them to reuse tombs because they were a whole room, and you would just take the body and shove it in a, on a shelf. But in this case, the Scripture tells us that it was... Uh, you know, Joseph's tomb, and obviously Joseph of Arimathea was still alive, and so he allowed it to be used. Uh, fortunately, it was only a rental because <laughs> Jesus only needed it for three days, and then Joseph got it back just as good as new. Um, the, uh, so, so they laid Jesus there because it was convenient, it was close to where he was crucified, and Joseph made this offer, and so that's what they did. Jesus was buried. Now, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. This is Sunday morning. And saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, by the way, when we come to the resurrection accounts, this is an area where people, nitpicking people like to say, Oh, the gospels contradict each other. Because if you take all the four gospel accounts and put them together, each gospel gives a different perspective, tells a different part of the story. But it's fairly easy to put them all together and see how they could fit together. A lot of the so-called contradictions are a thing like, Things like one person saw one angel and another person saw two angels. Well, angels, and then another person didn't mention angels. Well, angels can appear and disappear. Certainly one of them could appear and then two of them could appear. But if you map it out, you can easily come up with a chronology that includes all of the gospel accounts without contradiction. But John's giving his, uh, you know, his own little... uh, account of it after these other gospels have been written. And so he brings up unique points that he wants to emphasize. Uh, But again, if anyone, if you get freaked out or, you know, you're on the internet and these, you know, former fundamentalists are telling you they don't believe in the Bible anymore because of the contradictions of the resurrection accounts, you know, come and talk to me. We'll get some books out and you can see there are a lot of people who have, uh, like, there's a book called The Harmony of the Gospels. Another one called The Life of Christ in Stereo. Um, the Little Hallie's uh, Bible Handbook has the harmony, harmony of it. A lot of people have done that, so it's very easy to put it all together and make it into one story. But I, I don't think it's important enough to bring all the Gospels in here. We're just looking at what what John is talking about. So Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. It was still dark. She saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. At this point, she didn't suspect resurrection. Again, Jesus had talked about his resurrection, but they seemed to not get it. They seemed to not fathom it, really, at that point. And so she's just thinking somebody took the body. Peter, therefore, went out, the other disciple And they were going to the tomb, so they both ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. I like that. John's not, he doesn't ever name himself, but he does happen to mention that he was faster than Peter. Peter was always out there at front. John's going, yep, we both ran to the tomb, and uh, one of us was faster than Peter. (laughs) Got there, stooped down, looked in, and saw the linen cloths lying there. Yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, (sighs) following him, and he had to one-up him. And so he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. I like that. These cloths that had bound Jesus that were wrapped around him, and then a little thing around his head, a handkerchief around his head, Picture this, Jesus rose from the dead. Now I suppose it's possible that the angels who were there did room service and neatened it up a little bit, but most likely I see Jesus rising from the dead and he's not like rocky at the top of the steps, but he's like, he rises from the dead, he gets up and he's like cleaning up. He takes off his little clothes and folds them up and puts them there in the little head thing neatly. And it's just another one of those examples of Jesus not being in a hurry. Not reacting, overreacting. It's just like, I rose from the dead and I'm gonna go see some people and then I'm gonna go ascend into heaven, but let me just clean up first. It's also a good verse that you can use with your kids as to why it's important to clean their room before they leave. That's a freebie. And uh, so, so, they, so, so Peter saw this, and then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, the winner, went in also, and he saw and believed. He's like, I can't believe it. If they hauled him away, they would have taken the cloths, the burial clothes, and instead, man, for as yet they did not know the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead then the disciples went away to their own home. So they, it still hadn't sunk in, and yet they're going, I think he did it. I think he's still alive. What happened? Then Mary, who hung around longer, was there in the garden, and she was outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and didn't know that it was Jesus. So she goes in. She had been the first one there. She saw the stone was rolled away, looked in. Jesus isn't there. She runs and tells the disciples and, and they come and they look and they see the burial clothes. and at that point John is saying something started to click with him but they left and now Mary, still hanging around in the area and crying goes into the, into the tomb and this time she sees two angels sitting at the head and the foot of where Jesus would have been lying and and so she asks them what's going on you know they said why are you crying and she said they've taken away my lord she turned around and saw Jesus but she didn't know it was Jesus now it's kind of interesting and you'll see this throughout the resurrection accounts of Jesus that for some reason people didn't recognize him in in uh, for instance in the passage that we looked at Sunday in chapter 21 The Jesus was on the shore cooking breakfast and the disciples were out there fishing, hadn't caught anything. And Jesus said, Hey, you guys catch anything? And my little children and and they said, No, and he said, Throw the net on the right side of the boat. They did. They caught all these hundred and fifty-three fish, and and it was like, wow. And at that point, John said, It is the Lord. Now, why they didn't recognize him before, I don't know, but also when he showed up, as we saw several weeks ago, as he showed up in the upper room, they thought he was a ghost. They weren't sure who he was until he showed them the holes in his hands and on his side. Then they realized who he was the disciples on the Emmaus Road, Jesus walking along with them and they're bummed and he's going, what's the matter? And they're saying, you don't even know what's going on. We had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, but now he's dead and it's all over. And and Jesus talked and talked and talked to them, sat down in their house with them. And finally, after he showed them from all the scriptures, all the prophecies concerning him, then it says when they broke the bread... Then they recognized that it was Jesus, perhaps when they saw the holes in his hands. And as soon as they knew it was Jesus, then he disappeared. He took off. And so here we have this case of Mary. um, And I'm really not sure how to explain why they seem to not recognize him whenever he shows up. And until he talks or says something or does something... Then they recognize who he is. Some people have suggested that the scars are so awful because of the intensive beating that he endured that perhaps his scars were so bad that they couldn't recognize him. Isaiah says in chapter 52 that you couldn't even recognize him as a person. He was beaten so badly. Um, you'd tend to think that if that was the case, they would say they saw a guy with horrible scars and didn't know it was Jesus. It could be that he just closed their eyes and wouldn't allow them to recognize him at a point. It could be that in his resurrection body, um, I mean, if you read what he looks like in Revelation chapter 1, it's a whole different way than he would have looked at than he would have looked when he was on the earth. But he did show them, hey, I'm not a ghost. I have flesh and bones. And so he looked like a person. She didn't look at him and say, man, I thought it was an angel or a ghost. She looked at him and thought he was a gardener. So um, I, I'm really not sure completely how to explain that. It was still early in the morning. It was still you know, partly dark. Mary had been crying all night, so her tears in her eyes and, and the darkness and I don't know how he was dressed could have accounted for it. But I just think it's interesting that in each case, people seem to not, not recognize him. But she began to talk to him, and, uh, and Jesus said, "'Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Who are you looking for?' And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Kind of cute that she thought by herself she would just go and lug him off, and I don't know what she thought she would do with him, but it, it shows you that unique relationship that Mary Magdalene had with Jesus, that she was so moved that after everyone else left, she was still there. Just And, and as far as she's concerned, hey, I'll take him myself. I'll take care of this. After she says that, Jesus said to her, Mary, probably, and and then that's when she recognized him. Jesus probably had a special way that he said her name, probably either with some special feeling to it or just uh, the intonation or something, but as soon as he said her name and the way that... Only he would say it. She realized who he was, and, and she said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Rabboni is, a, is not the same. It's a related word to rabbi. There's a word, rab, that means leader, and it was used of teachers. There's a word, rabbi, that's more significant as a leader or a teacher, and rabboni really means, well, rab means teacher and or or really a master of any kind rabbi means my master and rabboni means roughly translated my great master the jews only had seven people that they gave the status of calling rabboni so it's not just a word that means teacher it's a word that means oh man you are my special teacher and so, a term of endearment that perhaps she had used of him before, but maybe it was only at this revelation that she realized that he, how great he was. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Now, people have made a big deal about this verse trying to figure out what in the world does that mean? It, it, in the King James, it says, don't touch me. New King James says, don't cling to me. That's probably a more accurate translation. But it almost sounds like she was keeping him from going to the Father. If you just read it and you're like, he's going, oh, you can't touch me. You can't hang on to me because I'm ascending to the Father. And so people have said, wait a minute. On that, on that Sunday morning, did he need to go up to heaven? And then they've built these whole doctrines of him going up there with a bowl of his own blood and putting it on the altar and all this stuff based basically on this passage. But really... The simplest explanation of this passage is something a lot less complicated. It is just that Jesus is basically saying, look, I, I, I'm i not going to heaven right now. I haven't yet ascended. Don't worry, I'm not going anywhere. The, you need to go tell the disciples that I'm here. I'll be hooking up with them. I'll talk to them. Don't freak out. Don't hang on to me like... And, and Pastor Chuck says that Mary's attitude was to get him in a death lock and say, you got away from me once, but you'll never get away from me again. And that probably was how she was feeling. But Jesus wasn't saying, you're keeping me from ascending. He would ascend later. But at this point, he was basically saying, don't worry, I'm still here. And then I love what he said, go to my brethren, Now, again, just calling them brethren, here he is, he's in his resurrection body, and yet he's acknowledging that he's still a man, that he's still human. And so he calls them brethren, and I I love that. But also he said, tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. He's saying, don't worry, the fact that I'm going to go to heaven, the fact that here, not many days after this, I'll be ascending, See, my God is your God. My Father is your Father. Because of what I've accomplished on the cross, it's great news. You can have the same relationship with the Father that you've witnessed in me, that same closeness, that intimacy. Because of what I've accomplished in my name, you'll be able to do that. And that must have been a great comfort to them. And that was the message that he had to offer to them. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. They probably thought she was just nutty. I mean, it's, in those days, women couldn't testify in court even. They weren't considered credible witnesses. <laughs> yeah, I just blanked out for a second, sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, but that was their attitude. So, so Mary comes and And they're like, yeah, right. So we see the passage that we covered several Sundays ago, and you can get the CD of that Sunday morning if you want this account in the upper room where Jesus shows up and says, peace be with you. And he showed them his hands and his side. Again, peace to you. As the Father sent me, I also send you this commission from Jesus to the disciples. And then, of course, Thomas not being there And oh, by the way, I should mention I did on a Sunday morning, but Jesus goes on to say receive the Holy Spirit as he breathed on them. And I believe that's when they were saved. That's when the Holy Spirit indwelt them. But then he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. He's sending them in the way that the Father has sent him and then telling them that you have the ministry of forgiveness or the lack of such Now, he isn't giving them some mystical power whereby they can forgive sins. But all he's saying is, I'm giving you the same message that I brought, that people's sins can be forgiven. That if you tell them, hey, if you confess, you can give them the good news that they can be forgiven. And and at the same time, you need to give them the warning that if they don't enter into a relationship with me, then they're gonna die in their sins. And so really, he's just handing them a message to share Of course, this whole story that I spent a whole Sunday on, Thomas coming and saying, I'm not going to believe until I see the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side. I'm not going to believe. And then Jesus came and said, go ahead. And again, as I mentioned on that Sunday, we pick on Thomas and we act like this was a horrible thing. But asking legitimate questions and asking for evidence God never minds that at all. He loves it when people check out what he has to say to see if it's real. He doesn't want us to just go, don't ask any questions. He's not the kind of parent that just says, you don't question your father or your mother. It's because I say so, that's why. But he's like, hey, if you have these questions, I have the answers. Go ahead, check it out. But then he goes on to say, there's a better way, and that is believing what you don't see the life of faith, the walk of faith, whereby you can put your faith in him even when you haven't seen him. That's a bigger blessing. And truly walking by faith, for Thomas would certainly be that, as we mentioned that Sunday as we looked at Thomas. He would end up giving his life. He would end up being a martyr over in India as a missionary, and at that point, he wasn't seen, he was still believing, and he would experience what we all experience when we walk in faith, that there's a greater blessing to believing Him when you can't see Him than even for those people who believed what they could see. Anytime we ask for more evidence, what we're doing is giving up some faith. Because faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That is, faith comes when we trust what He says, even when we can't physically see how it makes sense. And and that's always better. Now, there are times when God knows you need to see some evidence, and he'll give that to you. But for many of us, we found that when we were new Christians, boy, it would just, things fell into line. Every time we'd pray, we'd see an immediate answer. And now, you know, back in the days when you were a new Christian, you'd always pray, and there's a parking space at Walmart right up front by the people begging for money, and you'd be like, whoa, God, you're so cool. And you're going, I don't know, lately when I go to Walmart, I just Park way out in the back 40. It's just the way it works. Well, that's not a bad thing. Your relationship with God isn't slipping because you're feeling him less or seeing him less. It's actually growing because he's saying, you know, you're going to see there's a greater blessing to believing by faith than there is to even believing by evidence. I always feel that sometimes when people get too caught up in apologetics, it's an interesting study, and I enjoy it and love it myself. And yet, there's something to getting too analytical about your faith that then causes it not to be faith at all. To dig so hard and so deep and so... To try to find evidence, and yet faith is supposed to be our evidence. Oh, we need certainly enough evidence and enough credible evidence Uh, information in order to get us started in our walk with the Lord but there's a time comes as you grow in the Lord when God has done enough for you that you don't need to freak out every time you come across something in the Bible you don't understand or you know somebody else comes up with another list of 10 reasons why they don't believe in Jesus and you go oh no look at this it comes a time when you go, you know what? He's proven himself to me so many times. I'm just going to believe him. I'm not going to go scrambling and spending a month digging around on the internet trying to find the answers to all these questions. I'm just going to accept it because I know him. And as we walk by faith, the greater blessing is certainly there. Now in verse 30 there, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. Now over in... Uh, Verse 24 of chapter 21, when he's talking about the, the story of Jesus and Peter that we talked at, about this last Sunday, he refers to himself as the disciple that spoke to Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he says in verse 24, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So he's going, look, I saw all this myself. It's an eye, I'm an eyewitness to these events. And there also... Are many other things that Jesus did, which if if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And now flashing back to chapter 20, the same thing in verse 30. Jesus did a bunch of stuff that he said, I'm not recording. And so the fact that there are gaps, the fact that there are things that are left out, um, Jesus was accomplished much more than what was recorded. But he says in verse 31, but these are written that you may believe. Remember, Jesus said you're going to be blessed if you don't see and yet you have believed." So he says, I'm telling you these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John is acknowledging that the story of the gospel could have gone on and on and on and on. By this time, probably lots of written accounts, lots of oral accounts. Everyone had their own story of their relationship with Jesus, the times that they spent with him. But he said, I had a specific purpose in what I recorded today. And that purpose is that you'd know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, that he's man, that he's God, that he came God in the flesh to die for you and to rise from the dead, and practically, as you believe in Him, as you place your faith in Him, that you would have life in His name. The Bible doesn't tell the story of Jesus to convince you of anything. The Bible isn't here as a way for us to gain an insight into the universe. The Bible's not here, as, a, as, a, as many people often say, as a rule book for life, as an instruction manual for how to live. and all. It provides benefits in those areas, but ultimately... The Bible has one reason. Every book, all 66 books of the Bible have one reason for being written. So you would know who Jesus is and so that out of that knowledge, out of that relationship, you'd discover life in his name, a life in harmony with him, a life following after him, a life that as, Jesus, as we saw earlier in, in John, as Jesus said, I came that you'd have life and that you'd have it more abundantly. Anything that's in this book is there because it should provide for us a deeper, richer life. A more full way of relating to this world in which we are in. Connecting to people. Being useful for God's purpose to live in His name. For us to be representatives of Him on this earth. That's what the book is all about. That's what it's there for. That's the point of all of it. Now, for us... To acknowledge that Jesus died and that he rose from the dead, there's something further that has to happen. And that is our life needs to be changed. Our life needs to look more like his life because he gave it to us so that we could have that life in his name, that life that's full of him. Now, if we live our lives just seeking our own pleasure if we live our life following our own agenda, or if we decide to live our lives by doing what everyone else tells us to do, we let other people set the agenda for us, then we aren't having the kind of life that he designs for us to have. Our lives should be enviable. Our lives should be full of enthusiasm. You know, the word enthusiasm is, it comes from the Greek word in God or God within. And I think it's a shame When we don't take that step from understanding this book and reading it and studying it to where our lives actually reflect something that's desirable. When people got around Jesus and they saw his life, they were drawn to him. They were willing to give up everything to just follow him. And I'm often convicted myself, thinking, how many people run into me and are so impressed that they they would give up their way of life in order to follow me, that they would look at my life and say, that's the life that I want. But the key is, it's life in his name. It's in who he is. It's as he begins to live in us, we begin to change. And any time we study this book and we read this book and we memorize this book and we learn this book and it doesn't affect the way we live, it's really pretty counterproductive I often say to people, if, if you're just a miserable, complaining person, if you're a selfish, bitter person, if you're the laziest person at your work or, or the laziest student in your school, do God a favor and keep your mouth shut about being a Christian. You know, don't spread the word. Because if it doesn't work in our lives, then who are we to go tell other people to do it? Now, we'll never be perfect. And the message is Jesus in us, not us, you know, on top of him in some way. But at the same time, I think we all have to ask ourselves, is my life abundant? Am am I living a life in such a way that it actually causes people to notice? that, That they're drawn to me? That they see something in me that they would desire for themselves? And if not, then don't give up. And just go, okay, I'll shut up about Jesus. Cool, that's another burden off me. But it's this book. If we allow it to dwell within us, as Paul told the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. Let that happen. And you can tell easily whether that's happening or not by looking in the mirror, looking at your own life seeing the kind of impressions that you leave with people, the kind of impact that you're making on your world. And if you see the life of Christ, if you see that life that's abundant, then you're realizing the Bible is accomplishing its purpose. If not, it's a question of asking the Holy Spirit to help this book become alive in in our lives more and more. We need to receive more from him. Life in his name means that his life is filling us. It's really what communion is about ultimately. The elements of his body and blood. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Take this and eat it in remembrance of me. This is my body. This is my blood. What's he saying? Right before all of these events that led to his death. He's saying, You need me to be in you. Because if you discover life in my name, then you're going to have the best life you could possibly have. You will be truly blessed by that walk of faith, by that walk that's been touched by the living Jesus. The one who died for you, he really died. But the one who rose for you and who promised to give you life. And his word can provide that by his spirit. And communion is a physical way of us literally taking that into us. And, of course, we don't believe, um, as the Catholics do, that it, it turns into his body and his blood. But at the same time, I mean, I don't fault the Catholics a whole lot for transubstantiation because they just took it literally. They took it too literally, and the reason they did is if they had looked a little closer, they'd realize Jews wouldn't drink blood. It would violate the law. Had they done that, Jesus would have been a sinner. Also, Jesus called it the fruit of the vine after he said, this is my blood. But so the Catholics have it a little wrong. But I think we have it a little wrong often too. When we can so flippantly take these elements and act like it's nothing, when we think of it as nothing, there's a reason why Jesus told us to do it. And it's because as we participate in this uh, sacrament that he gave us, this ordinance of the church that he commanded for us to do until he would return and participate in it with us one more time, he wanted it to be something very real. He wanted it to be something molecular, though not a mystical transformation, but at the same time, a reality of realizing that what we're saying is, I need more of Him in me. I need more of His body, His blood. I need more of who He is to come forth from my life. In essence, when we humble ourselves before the communion table, what we're doing is saying, My life, it's not really yours yet. It's not measuring up. I'm coming short and I need to receive from you. And as we receive the bread and the juice that speaks to us of his body and blood, what we're saying is, Holy Spirit, I need a touch from you. My life hasn't been so abundant lately. It hasn't been looking like I'm living in you. And so I'm submitting myself to you and I'm receiving these elements and in so doing I'm receiving your forgiveness in so doing I'm acknowledging that my life doesn't mean anything without your life functioning in it without you becoming a part of me so it's a really important thing that we do as believers to come to his table and to remember his death as we've seen it tonight as we've read yeah he really died But he really rose. There are witnesses to it. There was evidence. There's more proof and evidence of the resurrection than there is of just about any other historical event. Because how many historical events are people willing to die rather than to admit that it's true or not true? And so as we've come here today on this day to bring ourselves to his table, to his body, to his blood, we're acknowledging exactly what John said he wrote this book for. And that is, we're acknowledging that he's real, Jesus is real, and that what we need is more of him in our lives, more of him living in us and through us. Let's pray. Lord, We look at our lives, we realize that most days we come pretty short of that life that you talk about. Most days we pretty much live on our own by the seat of our pants, winging it. But Lord, we desire that life of the Spirit. We desire to to know that Work of your spirit in our lives whereby in the middle of turmoil we experience peace. Whereby when people encounter us, they're amazed at our love and our joy, our peace, our patience. That These are the things that ooze out of us that if someone would meet us for the first time, that's what impresses them. And Lord, that life, we can't do it on our own. And God, we just pray that as we participate in this ceremony that was so special to you that you instituted it with your disciples and that you commanded that it would be observed and throughout the history of the church it's a time that's been so special the most special time for your people. Lord, make it special for us tonight as we come to your table we enjoy this fellowship with you and you in a way that only you can do begin to live your life more fully and more completely in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.